we're we're in ash we're in we're recording oh brilliant stuff so this is the first kind of like a pilot of a podcast that we're also putting out as a video podcast i suppose um uh, let me do a quick and this is this is the ash and cole podcast what were they thinking which is i know what most people said when we said we were going to do a podcast so the concept here is we're going to look at uh, various things. It's going to be films. It's going to be text, and we're going to um, poems. Poems. It could be. It could be music. I might introduce Ash to some decent music, not just the Cheeky Girls. Um, nothing wrong with the Cheeky Girls. <laughs> Lembit Opic. Um, is it? Is that his name? Lembit. Lembic. Lambert. Lambert and Butler. Um, who is he? he? He was dating one of the Cheeky Girls. Yeah, oh, I don't know. I don't read no, not Lenny. Limpit. 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 <laughs> he was dating one of the cheeky girls and seems as they're identical twins, and I think that counts as both of them. Um, yeah. He was, he was an MP, um, but not a proper one. I think Lib Dems or something like that. Um, I have no idea. I, I, need to, I need to refer to... I just don't want to type the word cheeky girls into my... Search engine. Oh, I've got. I'm a horror writer. My search history is supposed to get me arrested. Um. Yep. This. Len. Len. Hold on. Len. Len. What? Len Pit. Len Pit. Len Yeah. Len Pit. Len He's just making it up now. Yeah. Isn't that just? Is He's... that character of a series of unfortunate events? Um. Yeah, Lembit Opic Snicket. Um, yeah, um, and these cheeky girls. Wow, um, wait to fuck oh, up an introduction. That was great. Off to um, a fantastic yeah. start there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was cool. Anyway, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about things creatively, but we're not actually going to go and do research. Heaven forbid. No, we're going to talk about the creative process as if we were doing it. So when we look at today's piece, which is going to be Edgar Allan Poe's fall of the house of usher we're not going to look into what our other academics have said these are the probable influences of edgar Allan poe we're going to look at this from our point of view as creative writers and say if we were writing this this is how we would get from a to b or how we would have got from a to b and and try and unpick the thought process so we can get down to the, the little details where the thought was so genius that's what actually makes it a lasting piece i think is what we'll be able to pull out of this because there'll be that point where, because I've always hated the phrase, you know, when people sit there and go, you couldn't make it up, could you? Well, I think you could, to be perfectly honest with you. As a creative writer, I could write it, yes. Um, but there are certain moments where you go, God, I wish I'd written that. And, and that's yes. what I hope we find in this little, when we go mining into these things, I hope that's what we'll find. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and usually you find the people saying you couldn't make it up are people writing for the Daily Mail um, when they do nothing but make it up, really? <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't make it up as fascistly as we do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, Fall of the House of Usher, um, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, it's a story, as most people are aware. Um, spoiler alert um, for anybody who's um, unfamiliar. And to be perfectly honest with you, you've had over 100 years, so... You know. Yes, um, yeah, um, it's um, it's a story. Bear with me. Um, I've got some notes here that just remind me 
what the story's about. Um, yeah, all right, I'll accept your license then. Um, so, <laughs> Every so often, you've got to have legitimate software, Ash, just occasionally. Um, says who? Um, <laughs> nobody's mentioned that on Pirate Bay yet. So, follow the House of Usher. Synopsis. Um, an unnamed narrator arrives at the House of Usher, a very creepy mansion, owned by his boyhood friend, Roderick Usher. Um, Roderick has been sick, afflicted by a disease of the mind, wrote to his friend, the narrator, asking for help. Uh, the narrator spends some time admiring the awesomely spooky Usher edifice. That is the house. That's nothing kinky. Um, whilst doing so, he explains that Roderick and his sister are the last of the Usher bloodline and that the family is famous for its dedication to the arts. Eventually, the narrator heads inside to see his friend. Um, oh, yes, I would love, thank you. Um, Roderick appears to be a sick man. He suffers from an acuteness of the senses, as we all do. Um, hypersensitivity to light, sound, taste, and tactile sensations. Um, and he feels that he will die of the fear he feels. He attributes part of his illness to the fact that his sister, Madeline, um, suffers from catalepsy and will soon die he hasn't left the mansion in years um, and the narrator tries to help him get his mind off death and gloom by pouring over the literature um, that Roderick so loves but it doesn't seem to help as Roderick predicted Madeline soon dies or at least we think she does all we know is that Roderick tells the narrator she's dead um, hopefully he breaks it a little bit more subtly than that um, and that she appears to be dead when he looks at her. Of course, um, because of her catalepsy, she might just look like she's dead post-seizure. Um, so yeah, at Roderick's request, the narrator helps him to entomb her body in one of the vaults underneath the mansion. While they do so, the narrator discovers that the two of them were twins and that they shared some sort of supernatural, probably extrasensory bond. About a week later, on a dark and stormy night, the narrator and Usher find themselves unable to sleep they decide to pass away the scary night by reading a book. As the narrator reads the text aloud, all the sounds from the fictional story can be heard resounding from below the mansion. It doesn't take long for Usher to freak out. He jumps up and declares that they buried Madeline alive and that now she's coming back. And sure enough, the doors blow open and there stands a trembling, bloody Madeline. She throws herself at Usher, who falls to the floor and after violent agony dies along with his sister. The narrator flees outside. He watches the house of Usher crack in two and sink into the dark, dank pool that lies before it. I'm tempted to say, dun, dun, duh, but I won't. That was very good. Yeah. Yes. So. Tell me what you took away from it, Paul. Um, to start with, I... The craziness of the entire story itself, because when you when you read it, when you put it as a synopsis like that, it seems to have a very straightforward narrative. You know, it's the classic to like brother meets sister, sister's completely barking. Uh, friend turns up to kind of help with the barking sister, finds out that the brother's mad as well. Um, buries the sister alive because she probably wasn't dead. She's just had a fit, as actually wasn't uncommon back then, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and then when she comes back, the force and power, the supernatural power between the brother and sister caused the house to break, which actually is also is a, a sort of literal 
um, broken home at the end of it as the fall of the House of Usher, which also works as a pun against them being the last of the particular bloodline as well. So I kind of got all that. But when you read the actual text and the way that he writes it, it suddenly becomes immensely dreamy and sinister and melancholic. So the whole thing kind of takes you on the ride and almost puts you in the mindset of being in that crazy situation. And it does become really kind of imposing. I listened to a version of it read by Christopher Lee, um, which I think added that extra element. You know, it definitely, it was definitely more scary than anything I'd ever seen on Jack and Norton, put it that way. Um, and I think, it, I think it, it encapsulates the idea of, is it real or not by the end of it? Who's actually mad? Is it actually the narrator himself who's just insane? And, and has almost dreamt all of this, which, which I know Poe is particularly good at. Um, I think the narrator must be a little bit off his tits um, on some level because um, he's gone to spend some time with this, well, with a bloke called Roderick, which um, if I had a boyhood friend called Roderick and he invited me to stay, in that case it would be, sorry, mate, your name's Roderick. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's not Roderick, happening. Wouldn't you? you wouldn't actually call him Roderick all the time. Roderick... I don't think I could... As a heterosexual man, I couldn't stare at another man and call him Roddy or Rod. That would just be, um, yeah, it would, um, yeah, it would feel strange. It was, feel, it would feel as though I was exploring things that should remain unexplored for somebody of my age. Well, I don't know. Yeah, good point. Yeah, but that's that's a, so so it's the, it's in the writing itself, not just the story idea. Because I think as a basic story idea, I think it has you know, a very kind of of its time structure to it that you can see, you know, it's it's removed family. When he's talking about gentry because of the house itself, the way it describes it, he starts off by going up this dreary road, you know, and the house is miles away from anywhere. And there was a lot of kind of eccentric characters that used to live off in the countryside, in particular with money, sort of going back at the time when he wrote it. So from a, from a creative point of view, at the time it was written, it wouldn't have actually been so otherworldly to have such a mansion and have um, you know, people living in them that nobody really knew anything about because they wouldn't have been going to the village themselves and stuff like that. I think you make a really valid point as well about how um, the structure sets off with a feel of melancholia and how it is very much of its time. Am I right to just read a little bit out from the opening? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, where we've got, during the whole of a dull, dark and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of evening drew on, within view of the melancholy House of Usher. Right, that's your opening sentence. And it's so bleak and dismal. I mean, if it wasn't Poe, I would have tossed this aside and thought, yeah, that's fucking grim. Um, <laughs> and not bothered. Um I mean, you say you used a word there, actually, if you did a forensic analysis of this, did you know the, the forensic analysis where you do the word count? I actually think within Poe, dreary would be one of his favourite words, actually. And gloom. gloom. He uses gloom a lot, but dreary just because he uses it in the Raven a lot as well, doesn't he? So. Um, yes, but then again, it rhymes with so many things, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, folks. Dreary, weary. Um... That raven's a little bit leery, um, yeah. <laughs> Raveny, um, you know, gone through many edits. 
but yeah you're absolutely right yeah. so when, when you do the opening the opening thing um even describing the house itself as melancholic is quite an interesting thing to do because he's using an emotion to describe something that is essentially just inanimate and he's not using colors he's not using um you know, size or any of the other kind of classic tropes or schemas that you would use in those those particular points he's he's using a straight emotion that is i mean melancholy it's not even the most depressing is it it's that kind of slightly gray feeling that you get when you go out on a drizzly morning and you just go oh you know your shoulders slump it's thick. so it gives you a feeling that you set yourself in a position to and it kind of makes the whole house itself kind of slump and look a little bit pissed off you think he's doing that so that he's got a starting point with look we're a bit melancholy at the start by the time we get to the end of it um it's going to be so it's going to be a grand guignol of um despair and gloom and yeah yeah i think i think it is very much setting the scene isn't it and it's uh it's a short story so he has to get into it very very quickly and by doing that he's really going for in the mind of the reader to put the reader in a kind of depressed state to start reading this because i think I don't know. I think that kind of it, it, to make the mind wander, maybe, because I, I sometimes think, you know, when you, when you get moments on your own, they always say the worst place to be is caught as a prisoner in your own head because you can kind of overthink things. And that whole first it's not even the first paragraph. It's like the first third of the paragraph. It really sets the reader in their own head. It kind of says, there's, you know, it's, it's almost saying it's like a prison, but without it being security orientated president putting it in that bleak mood which is uh which is like you say setting the scene for the whole thing but it's almost like you're about to step into madness you're about to go into depression here and this is and we're going to take you on that journey yeah i think madness is one of the themes that we'll see cropping up repeatedly whenever we look at poe as well yeah um which i don't know is that because we think that poe might have been a little bit on the mad side um, for one of a bit, I appreciate "mad" is sort of like a horribly brusque term that would, um, brushes over a lot of mental. He definitely was uh, had depression from reading his stuff. I would say he was definitely along those lines that he was someone you couldn't cheer up in that respect. You know, there was, uh, and you see that in if that's if these are the, if these are kind of like um, spilling out of his thoughts on the page and how he sees things, then yeah, he's, I think he's definitely on that very much a de depressive. Um, I, I wouldn't know about manic because I don't think I've read anything that goes mania, but he definitely understands the other side of thought. Do we think the writers are like that, though? Do we think that what we write is an overspill of who we are? Do we think that, for example, E.L. James is really... Um... I don't even know where I'm going with that thought. Um... <laughs> I don't. I don't think E.L. James is a complete uh, spill out on the page of her thoughts. I think it's mainly just where she's flicking off. Or any other effluvia. Hey. Eh? <laughs> or any other effluvia. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, pages of Twilight. I think that's all. It, that's all it does. Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that I don't know whether it worries me in a defensive way. That um, at the moment I'm writing horror. Does that mean that I've got? Um, any something within me that keeps me drawn to the macabre? Am I 
depressed and wanting to explore these themes. Yeah. I think sometimes with the creative thoughts, you can, sometimes it can be cathartic where you're, you know, you are, you've got something playing on your mind and you want to get it out. Usually my boss, usually dying in horrible ways. But the, the main part of it sometimes is about choices that you make, isn't it? Sometimes it, it's like when you're writing poetry, you sit down and that's where you're going to, you're going to spill out your emotions on the page sometimes when you're kind of doing it, unless you have a specific theme you're writing about. And I think this is where the fall of the House of Usher plays in between does it look like a planned piece? You know, does this someone who sat down one day and said, oh, I've got this idea of um, a house that his brother and sister live in and they're all a bit crazy and dusty wedding dresses and kind of that kind of thing. Or did he just start writing? Or was this genuinely a spill of he just had this feeling to write something and start writing out? Because I know I've recently been to Whitby and I can see the Bram Stoker influence. And we will do... Bram Stoker another another time but you see all around you can you as you get there and you look at the architecture and you look at the structure of the place you can understand how he sat down and started working out how to place this together and how to bring the players in and out but with Poe I don't get that sense of it at all I get the sense that he starts at the first sentence and writes all the way to the end and then maybe gets edited back you know where he gets an editor so you haven't used dreary enough but more dreary in it please you know or something like that but it's it does seem to be more of a, a flow of consciousness with Poe's work and in, and I found that in particular with Fall of the House of Usher in that the ideas seem to kind of jump on the back of each other rather than follow a path that lands on them if you know what I mean so if, if you plan your punchlines you kind of then get this path that lands on the punchline at a good timing but these ones kind of flow into them. And, you know, when she bursts through the door, it, there's no real setup for it in that respect. They start hearing noises. It's almost like you've gone, they're hearing noises. What are these noises? Ah, I know. You know, and it just happens at that point rather than being, being the, the initial idea when he started. What were you saying before then about how you'd gone into Poe and didn't like him, but it was your fault? Yeah, for years, I didn't like Poe. For years, I, I kept trying to read it. But, of course, the melancholy and dreariness kind of kept putting me off but part of that was um going way back in time when i had an amstrad cpc 464 back in the 80s old computer color monitor and there was a computer game called the fall of the house of usher and i remembered the computer game so i thought i'll go and look up the computer game because we were doing this right and so i looked it up i found it on youtube and and it just reminded me of how utterly shit it was because it was it was a terrible game, and he had nothing to do with Poe. Honestly, they just used a name and had a kind of spooky image at the beginning and a house. But it was the most awful, awful game. And I, I thought I liked Poe because I liked the Vincent Price movies. I thought they were brilliant, yeah. right? But when you try to read Poe, especially when you're younger, it, they say it has that depressive mouth. But when you have a game that was just so awful, by the title, because I loved the films... You know, Fall of the House of Usher, right? And then you get this game, and it's just dreadful, honestly. It was just the worst game ever. Um, and I think I kind of associated how bad that was with Poe. So every time I started reading Poe, all I thought about was the game. So such a point where I forgot about the game and, and never really gave Poe a chance. So, <laughs> so this is kind of, you know, this whole experiment of doing this has rekindled my appreciation of Poe, definitely. 
Oh, brilliant. Does that mean you're going to be dipping into more Poe then? I'm going to definitely dip into more Poe, yeah. Because uh, I do like the, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm completely crazy about creativity. And I liked the way it flowed in that way. Like I say, if I was writing this kind of thing, that's exactly how I would have written this story. It would have been, I start at the beginning. I would have just had this idea that I wanted to have something that was down and dreary and black and as my mood is. And then as I was writing it, finding these other little bits that you could go into that were kind of a little bit creepy, but didn't necessarily make any sense to it until you kind of get to the end where you just, I mean, I love the, the boldness of just walking away from it and watching the house break. It's like, I mean, that's, that was nicked in Poltergeist, wasn't it? We walk out and the whole house was just taken in. So, and I think it was nicked also um, at the end of Blues Brothers, where they step out of the police car and yeah, it just falls into itself. Yeah. Yeah, so that that I thought was, you know, you go back and look at those, and but you can see that if that was not the original idea was to have a house go in. It was almost, it, it, you know, it might have been inspired by scenes. I'm quite inspired um, by architecture, you know, where you see buildings and you go, yeah, that would make a great scene, you know, and you start trying to piece together bits around it to whether or not you can create the story. But I think Poe was just more flowy than that. I think the, like I say, it, it has so much more of a as it as it goes kind of feel to it without any you know real uh, roadmap, so to speak. And yeah, I get what you're saying about architecture as well. There's um, a house near us that um, I suppose it has been abandoned, yeah, um, but it's been been taken over by pigeons. Uh, there's like a couple of holes there just above the bay. There's um, as you walk past it, you can see pigeons in some of the rooms in the house um, looking out at you, um, which is an unreal thing. And I know it's going to end up in a story somewhere not too far in the future for me. It's just one of those things, the house of pigeons. Um, yeah, it's... We, we went up uh, Rivington Pike. And on Rivington Pike, there's a thing called Pigeon Tower. <laughs> They know how to name their buildings around there, don't they? <laughs> yes, I mean, there's no pigeons in it. It might have been at some point. It's called Pigeon Tower. So having a pigeon house, you know, that yeah, makes it, sense. Um, yeah, and part of me is thinking, what the hell must it be? I mean, it must stink of pigeon shit in there. And, yeah, it must be potentially a health hazard. But also... That just makes it all the more exciting. It's also yeah. very Hitchcockian, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you can imagine um, the idea of those pigeons actually luring people in, you know, just, just going off and stealing their handbags or whatever. I don't know what pigeons do, but luring people in and killing them, actually being killed by pigeons. So the whole, you go in, there's like a pile of bones in there where these pigeons have been having their, you know, their cannab, you know, cannab not cannibalistic, they wouldn't be that, carnivorous pigeons, you know. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe if I can sort of like shift them from pigeons to seagulls, because I've got a thing about seagulls at the moment, <laughs> I could steal their chips. Um, yeah. As, um, so where do you think you got the idea from? Where did you get the idea from? I don't know. Um, I, uh, I don't know. For me, I think reading it, I, I think he saw an old abandoned mansion house that no longer had an owner because all the family was gone. I think that's where it started from. I think he might have been out either on a ride or walking through the countryside and found one of these houses 
And they do get into a dilapidated state so quickly. They get into a dilapidated state when they're living in them, you know, because they're so big. But, you know, when something falls into disrepair, then I can imagine you kind of seeing that. And it's, it's more to do with that description right at the beginning, the melancholic house that you can almost say that he looked at this, this house and it, and, and it gave that back to him, that this house was depressed, that he, no one was living in it. And I can imagine standing, looking at the building and feeling those feelings inside yourself reflected on the house itself. So I think that's where it's, I think it started very much where that first paragraph is. One of the things I've been reading, um, it's like, um, suggests that Poe's inspiration for the story might be based upon events of the Hezekiah Usher house, um, which I think the clue's in the name there that, yeah, it possibly was. Um, it was located um, on the Usher estate that's now a three-block area in downtown modern Boston, Massachusetts, um, adjacent to Boston Common, bound by Tremont Street to the northwest, Washington Street to the southeast. The um, house was constructed in 1684, um, and it was either torn down or relocated in 1830, which was nine years before this story was actually produced. Um, and other sources indicate that a sailor and the young wife of the older owner were caught and entombed in their trysting spot by her husband. Um, and when the Usher house was torn down in 1830, two bodies were found embraced in a cavity in the cellar. Two bodies embraced in a cavity in the cellar. Yeah, I. But yeah, I love the fact that you picked up on that. Yeah, I, um, he'd been inspired by some big creepy old house, and yeah, yeah. Um, this looks like it was inspired by a creepy old house. There are a couple of other bits that I'm going to get onto in a minute, but yeah, um, yeah, and I do think there is that awful lot of inspiration, and I don't know why. No, I do know why. I do know why. It's because you don't know what you're going to encounter in each of the rooms. We just tried watching something on... Um, what the hell was that channel we just tried watching? That crap Stars one thing. Play. Was it called One Channel or something? Or Channel One or Channel Zero? What, that program? Yeah. Zero. Channel Zero. Channel Zero. Um, yeah. Um, we were just um, trying to look at something on Channel Zero. And the second season... Sorry, it was a program called Channel Zero. Um, the second season, it looks like it's got people trying to go through different rooms in a house. Um, see, that scared the dog, that whole notion. Uh, <laughs> that dog's definitely seen something on the stairs, isn't it? That's not that. That's, yeah, Hound of the Baskervilles is there now. Um, yeah, um, very small Hound of the Baskervilles. Chihuahua of the Baskervilles. Um, but you, Oswald, shut the hell up. Oh, shush, darling. Um, so, um, yeah, you've got people who are meant to go through um, six rooms, one room after another, um, with a big spooky um, main boss at the end of these rooms that's going to be the big, big scare that nobody ever comes back from. And I think that's what we see when we see these big buildings. We see the potential for what's going to be in each room. Um, you know, is it going to be that... Oh, well, this one's bad, but next one's a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And Christ, there's hundreds of these damned rooms. And by the time you get to the end one, yeah, you will have encountered the worst things ever. There's a, there's a story in, in the Blood Ink book that I wrote, the first yeah. one. And that's actually based on something that me and a friend did when we were kids. We, there was, I grew up on a council estate in Hollingbury, which is just north of Brighton on the South Downs. And 
we moved in in 1976 and very shortly after we moved in there, there were two children's homes at the end of the close and one of them got closed down and you never knew why but for years it was sat there and there was, there was a caretaker on the estate that none of us ever saw but we used to find if you broke the windows in this children's home the next day it'd be repaired and you'd, you'd never see anyone repair it and then one day i actually worked out that they repaired it with putty and the putty was still wet so we were we were playing in the garden of this place because you could mess about and nobody could see you and i took this little window pane out which i described very much in the in the book and we opened opened the window got in and broke into this empty house and this is still to this day one of the most frightening things i've ever done because we walked around this old children's home and you found things like little bolts on the outside of the bedroom doors and there were these kind of really strange metal hoops on the floors and, you, and all you could think were the most sinister acts had gone on in there um and your imagination just went completely crazy as you're walking through the place and it's and it has inspired a couple of pieces there's a poem i wrote as well re regarding it um because it's just such striking images and it was it was a very mood and after that the whole house did actually take on a whole sinister feel to it and I, I looked at it it was an evil house even now there's people live in that house you know I, I'm not going to mention the address of it in that respect because I don't think that would be fair. But the, the I look at that house now when I go down go down to Brighton and I go past you know where I grew up, and it still has that almost exorcist feel to it. <laughs> it, it was just such a creepy place that, um, that that's why I think he he was inspired by a house in particular because you know they do have this really. You know, they are. We, we, we anthropomorphize them so much in that we, it's almost like the house itself has feelings. Yeah, I mean, you look at the um, the Amityville house. Um, it's almost like a face, isn't it, with those like, little triangular eyes and that um, dome-shaped part of the head. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's impossible not to look at a house as not being sort of like two windows for eyes and a nose for a door yeah and, and there's one isn't there that i can't remember where it is called the hitler house where they've actually built the roof in such a way that it looks like he's he's quit and there's an arch <laughs> above the door that at certain times of the day it casts a shadow like a hitler mustache over the door you can look that one up look up hitler house and you'll I've got, yes i will be doing that as soon as we've finished yeah um yeah because i don't mind having things like that in my search history <laughs> Cheeky girls in the house, yeah, and I'm cool with all of those things. Um, another source, then, potentially for the inspiration, um, it might be from an actual couple, um, Mr. and Mrs. Luke Usher. Um, they were friends and um, acting colleagues of his mother, Eliza Poe, because his mother, Eliza, was an actor. Well, technically, she was an actress, but I'd appreciate that it's sort of like politically correct to refer to actors and actresses as actors, because that way we're not. Uh, being gender specific um, and yeah Mr and Mrs Usher took care of Eliza's three children including Poe during her time of illness and eventual death um, which again and I think it adds to Poe's uh, sense of melancholia that um, his parents died um, whilst he was very young and um, people took the other children um, his brother and sister were taken by somebody else and they didn't want Poe. Well, they didn't want Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, obviously, they were quite happy with two Poes. But the third Poe, who was Edgar Allan, um, ended up with, um, well, Edgar Poe, ended up with the Allen family, who were um, 
Mr. Allen wasn't as nice to Poe as um, somebody could be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that builds upon the idea that most of his writing was coming from a sense of his mental state as well as his creativity, that his emotional mental state and his creativity were definitely blurring lines between them at that point. And I've got notes here that say that um, the German writer E.T. Hoffman um, was a role model and inspiration for Poe um, and published the story um, Das Majorette in 1819. And there are many similarities between the two stories, including the physical breaking of a house, eerie sounds in the night, story within a story, and the house owner being called Roderick, spelled German. Um, and because Poe was familiar with Hoffman's work, he knew the story. But I'm not sure whether I can actually buy into that. I mean, if I was about to write a story about a serial killer um, who worked with the police, there's no way I'm going to call him Dexter. Um, yeah, and this whole notion that Poe has pretty much cut and pasted this entire story from Hoffman, translating it maybe from German before we'd got things like um, ways of identifying plagiarism so blatantly. Um, but yeah, um, and I don't know, do you think Roderick was a sexier name back then? I don't know. I mean, Roderick is one of those, I was trying to think, because when he said Roderick, I'm pretty certain going back even to the sort of 50s and 60s, Roderick was a, a name that was actually used. And there's a number of actors I'm pretty certain from that time that called themselves Roderick. Um, well, they live, you've got Rowdy Roddy Piper, haven't you? you know, Which I'm assuming that's short for Roderick. Or was Rod Stewart a Roderick? It could be Rodney. You know, Rodney kind of fell out of fashion because of Only Falls and Horses, didn't it? You know. Yes. But, uh, but Roderick... Yeah, yeah. Rowdy Roderick Piper. Yeah. I think I mean you can you can have things like that. You could you could say that he's done his own version of it. because uh, artists do that all the time. I remember um reading a story about Salvador Dali and there's a particular there's a painting called uh The Little Blue Boy. Little Boy Blue. And it's this, this famous painting, it's a Rembrandt. And Dali wanted to paint his own version of it. So the, the New York museum where it was gave him three hours with this painting on his own and when he came out he'd actually drawn like a rhinoceros horn and he said that's my version of the little boy blue um so it wasn't uncommon for artists to do that you know especially when you you know if you think that your main audience isn't going to know what the source is is it a copy in place i don't know i don't think it is i think sometimes you can have a heavy influence and not realize where that influence has come from sometimes it's not necessarily plagiarism you might look at a house and go oh my god that's amazing and then you start going into the story and there there are very big similarities with those sort of things uh, you know that can happen quite often um but i don't I, you know i don't know reading his other stuff he doesn't seem you know People people say that J.K. Rowling did pretty much the same thing, and you can find evidence of it. But J.K. Rowling's body of work stands on its own, you know, greatly. Even though there are similarities to things where she's obviously been influenced by things, maybe. But yeah. absolute plagiarism. Um, no, I think yeah, I fully agree with you on that. Um, we've got um, notes here that say another German author. Um, Heinrich Clorin's 1812 story, The Robber's Castle, um, as translated into English by John Hardman, published in 1828, The Robber's Tower, may have served as an inspiration, according to Schmidt and Hansen, um, 
because as well as sharing common elements, such as a young woman with a fear of premature burial um, being interred in a sepulchre directly beneath the protagonist's chamber, stringed instruments and the living twin of the buried girl, um, they identify textual evidence of Poe's use of the story and concludes that the inclusion of um, Vigile Mortorium, the opening part, um, Vigils for the Dead, according to the use of the Church of Mainz, is drawn from the use of a similarly obscure book. Um, so, I think yeah, I can see you scowling there, and I'm uh, in complete agreement with you. This is just people saying, yeah, well, there was a story like that before. No. And yeah. Um, I've entered the world of academia, um, even though I've constantly had, um, uh, and, and it's probably recorded on record somewhere, my um, disdain for some things academic. And sometimes I see things like that as just being academics trying to find a purpose for their title as being an academic. They have gone into something in such detail, they have to find something about it, you know, to, to go that way. The concept of twins being somehow psychically linked, I think, has been there all the way through. Are we going to say that that is also what uh, Stephen King was doing in The Shining by using dead twins? You know, it's, it is that kind of... Um, Oh, God, what's it called now? I remember Douglas Adams said it about the number 42. And people kept going on about, if you do this and it's 42, and if you look at the Hubble telescope, the angle of it is like 41.999996, which is almost 42. And therefore, he was saying this. Um, and uh, Douglas Adams was saying, effectively, you have an idea. And if that idea is popular, it will eventually become... Uh, it will become its own prophecy and it will be seen everywhere. As, it's like Catch-22 is a classic example of that because Catch-22 doesn't actually exist. You know, when the book was written, there is no clause in any armed forces that say if you think, if you can say you're insane, you're not because you can self-diagnose. It doesn't exist. He just thought it was a great idea. And he needed a number. And he sat down with his friends one night and said, I need a funny number. And they all threw numbers at each other and they all went themselves laughing at 22. So he called it Catch 22. Now it's a phrase that everybody uses and genuinely believes it's a genuine concept in, you know, in that respect. And they'll find it in so many places it never really existed previously. Or a, con a similar concept might have existed previously that might have been the inspiration behind his, the spark of his work. But to, to say it's an, an absolute, oh, he has drawn absolutely from this point, I think that's a step too far, really, because, you know, you could analyse most things, couldn't you? I, mean, I would say, you know, how many, how many times does that German piece use the word dreary, for example? You know, I bet it doesn't. So, you know, so it's sort of, Are you I'm, saying not, that... I'm not the greatest defender of Poe, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not going to sit here and defend it. I, I, as a creative process... I think that's really disingenuous to kind of put it that way. Are you saying that um, these suggestions are basically the Mandela effect, that people are sort of like seeing, seeing yeah, inspiration? Well, the Mandela effect is misremembering, isn't it? The Mandela effect is the idea that you remember that something has happened that hasn't. Where this yes, is, that's right. I think this is definitely looking for things. It's, I think it's that kind of idea where you have an idea that this is what has happened, and you go looking for evidence of that and you don't stop. I think the modern version of it is I have a political point of view and I'm going to search the Internet until I find someone that agrees with me. And yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. So, um, Paul, press the wrong button there. Um, Um, so, yeah, um, my thoughts. Did you want to hear my thoughts on Hopefully, where I think? Yeah, I mean, that's what we're here for. I, <laughs> I think he has decided to take a to take a huge gothic trope dump on the page and throw everything that he can that he thinks is a little bit spooky. Um, and I've seen people suggesting that perhaps um, it's something to do with his relationship with his um, 13 year old cousin wife. Um, <laughs> different times, different times. Yeah, different times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why isn't it like that? No, I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> Does that mean Jerry Lee Lewis even... was just plagiarizing Poe by marrying his cousin? You know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are people that suggest that because um, he's got this sickly 13-year-old cousin wife. Um, I'm going to say 13-year-old cousin wife again because that just sounds like one of... <laughs> I love the phrase, a cousin wife. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, um, there's parts of the town where we are at the moment where that's probably <laughs> going to get um, picked up and used um, quite frequently and very accurately. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she was sickly, and um, throughout his life, there were a lot of sick women. Um, obviously, mother dying, um, the um, Mrs. Allen um, was very poorly. I can't remember whether she died whilst he was young or whether she was just sickly. But yeah, um, he was, he'd got the Midas touch with women if instead of turning them to gold, he made them dead sick. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, the Sidam torch, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think potentially that's part of it, but he just seems to be throwing everything that he possibly can. Oh, it's a big, spooky old house. Oh, the weather's very, very bad and dreary, and, yeah, oh, cracks in the furniture. Oh, somebody's a little bit sickly. Oh, she's got catalepsy um, because she's a woman and women are all sickly. Um, oh, she's dead because women do that. Um and then, yeah, this whole, oh, but she's not dead. And like you say, um, the synopsis makes it sound as though it's structured and it's a cohesive whole. But the whole story isn't that structured. Um, the whole story does just come along as though... If you get a six-year-old... right? This isn't me suggesting experiments, by the way. But <laughs> you get a six-year-old, ask them to tell you a story, but first they've got to drink six cups of sunny delight um and then they start telling you it's almost as though oh and then this really miserable thing happened and then this and, then, and halfway through a sentence they're stopping themselves and so yeah. what are you saying ash that the editor of poe has just taken out every time he's gone um and um um and then this happened <laughs> well um and she bursts through the door um you know that yeah yeah the editor has sort of like gone through it and um been so oh, yeah, really fucking brilliant. Yeah, we'll remove that. Um, the audience won't. Um, oh, and then and then and then, Jesus Christ, yeah. Um, which, given the fact that um, there is a strong relationship between Poe and um, rumors of substance abuse, in that case, potentially that might not be that far from the mark. So, the, so the, the, in a way, we agree then that basically this, it's, it's not so much a structured piece, it's kind of like 
he started at one point with a bit of an influence and then started just writing and and i actually like your uh, your description of it there as a gothic a gothic dump on the page of just piling it up and piling it up on top of itself until he just got to the point where it just broke when the house fell apart um yeah i was just looking um Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom, I now propose to myself a sojourn of some weeks. Um, its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood. But many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, eluded it. Um, although as boys we had been even um, we had been even intimate associates. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I really knew little of my friend. Oh, so glory holes. Um, <laughs> well, type, yeah. of, type of people they used to hang around with, maybe. Or lithium. Um, yeah. Hells or lithium, one of the two. Um, feeble gleams and crimson. But I mean, his writing's gorgeous, isn't it? There's just so much wonderful description going on in here. But yeah, it is. Gloom after gloom after gloom. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians, a settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, slight cystitis, um, and frequent... It doesn't mention cystitis, really. I was joking there. I was adding that in for my own entertainment. Um, and frequent, although transient, affections of a partially cataleptical character uh, with the unusual diagnoses. But he's got the word hitherto after that. And, yeah, oh, you just... Oh, anybody you can put hitherto in, yeah. That turns it into classic literature. Just, it just does, doesn't it? Yeah. I was just reading this bit here. I was, I was looking at some of the highlighted bits I put in. Um, unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the brutality of all attempts at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe. Brilliant. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I yeah. absolutely love his writing. Um, yeah. Um, yes, that is the kind of sentence that I think nowadays you kind of, you would write that sentence and then you'd, you'd sort of like check yourself in the mirror, wouldn't you? And go, oh, God, nobody's going to buy this now. Because <laughs> it's just so full of emotion all around it. You know. It's um, but it's um, post-unity of impression, isn't it? He's sort of like going for this ideal of tying everything in so that it's got that whole thing. Um, he was the one who suggested that um, to maintain that unity of impression, that it needs to be something that we read in a single sitting, um, which is, yeah, you, re you don't sort of like think, oh, well, I've had a couple of pages of Osher, I'm going to go, and, um, yeah, have me tea now. Um, <laughs> once you start it, yeah, it's yeah. a couple of thousand words, yeah. And you go there right to the end. And yeah, he's got you all the way through. And yeah, you've got the emotional connection all the way through there as well. It's a very good point, actually, because I think that's, you know, from a creative point of view, that is part of the art of chapter writing as well, isn't it? You either write short stories or you write chapters like short stories. So the chapter itself can be, can be read in one sitting and it, it has an end to it that makes, does make you want to read off, but you can stop. At that point, it is the end of episode. In a, yeah. In a, and when you don't write like that, that's when books can become much harder to read. Like, I mean, going back to before they had chapters, you know, with, was it Mole Flanders? Um, yeah. 
And I've got to make sure I say that right, because I always think of The Simpsons every time um, that one comes up. Um, and even actually, I'd go as far as saying um, Tolkien. Uh, you know, I found with, with The Hobbit, his chapters were really like that. They were nice and concise and, you know, to the point and you could read them in one sitting. But when you get into the Lord of the Rings stuff, the chapters then start to spread out. There's a couple of nice short ones, but they do start to kind of spread out in such a way that it makes it hard to read a full chapter in one sitting. And therefore it becomes a real slog to get through because you don't get to an end point. You don't get to a break. And I think that does. It, inter it interferes with your enjoyment sometimes. Um, but Tolkien with um, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit things, um, he wrote those for children that he despised, didn't he? And it was just a case <laughs> of... Um... I thought The Hobbit he did, and did, he actually wrote that um, for his son, didn't he, whilst he was away. But the Hobbit, I like the Hobbit. I think the Hobbit's a great piece. But that's another that's another discussion. I think doing, doing that is yeah those ones because I know um, I, I know you don't you're not so keen on the Hobbit, but you, we have a very similar disliking for the Lord of the Rings as a as a piece of written work. But like we always say here, is actually this is not about just the written work. It's about the creativity behind it, and I think you can't knock the creativity behind what he does in that way. So that will be an interesting one to do in that respect. Um, yeah, it will. Yeah, because <laughs> we'll have um, to keep in check on that one. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been trying to read that damn book for several years now. I didn't and... think it through it. Yeah, when the film came out, when 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 um, Fellowship of the Ring was coming out, I'd, I'd been trying to read it because I'm a role player, as as you know, and so fantasy worlds are something that are uh, like bread and butter to the role playing world. So it's a book I should have read, you know, I should have read it by now and I hadn't read it. So I finally got through it and, you know, got to the end of it and I much preferred the films. <laughs> but it was You're his writing. You're a braver writing. man than I am. It wasn't the ideas, it was his writing. I've just not been it. I keep trying them and uh, and can't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the ideas, lovely, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lots of creepy little hobbit things, whatever they are. What are they meant to be? Hobbits. hobbits. Yeah. They're, they're just the little people, basically. They don't wear shoes. Big feet, though, so, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've seen that video. Yeah. Um... But, yeah, they're, they're just, they're kind of like the, the, I suppose they represent the villagers, don't they? The old, the old nature, because there's always been that kind of metaphor between the industrial age and the, the villages of the, you know, um, rural ideas and so there's that's where a lot of the clashes are supposed to come in but like i say that's for another one we're uh that's for another one yes because yes. we could, could um, easily just talk about that for hours um yes that's that's the worrying thing really um <laughs> the fact that it would be such an interesting discussion but um <laughs> but it would mean reading lord of the rings no no it doesn't mean reading lord of the rings and that's sometimes the point like i say we're looking at the creativity behind it and you can do that in small, I mean, reading Poe, and I'd say that to anyone, if anyone actually ever listens to this, and I don't know if they ever will or whether they ever come back, I've no idea. Um, but read some Edgar Allan Poe, read Fall of the House of Usher, um, or get Christopher Lee to read it to you at bed one night because you know it's great and uh, it really is a, a very, a very interesting experience because of the haphazardness of it because of the way that it just flows out you know it is batshit crazy the way that it, it's put onto the page and the just the kind of majesty 
and, and beauty in the words that he uses in such a depressing way. And it's a bit like, in music terms, I say it's like a, there's a band called Anthony and the Johnsons, where the beauty is actually in the despair of his voice. So, it's, you know, you're listening to this guy's soul break on record, but it's beautiful to listen to because of it. And I think Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher is very much like that. Musically, I would have I would have compared it to um, Gustav Mahler, um, who, um, yeah, if you listen to say Symphony Number no. Five, um, has got so much beauty within it, but at the same time, um, there's a sense of despondency to it as well. Um, but yeah, that's just me, and um, I don't want to come across as pretentious with uh, Gustav Mahler. And yeah, not. <laughs> um, but this is this. Well, is- this is the beauty. Okay, let's. I mean, I like that. I like that as a thing. So I've compared it to Anthony and the Johnsons for the lowbrow. Uh, you've compared it to Gustav Marlowe as the highbrow, and I can't pronounce that because I, I do actually know who it is, even though I'm not hanging on it. Um, uh, okay, so if you're going to do that, so if you were going to say, Fall of the House of Usher without watching a Poe movie starring Vincent Price, of which I personally suggest that you do, but do, do you, can you think of a film or television? show that has more recently been on that um actually i can i can think of one right now actually of a film that i would compare for the house of usher to in terms of tone as go on what are you thinking i'm actually thinking the 1963 version of the haunting directed by robert wise right i think it has it has that kind of because it's mainly based on ellie you know from the shirley jackson book yeah um, the Haunting of Hill House, and and it was I know it was recently redone on Netflix, which was actually really good up until the last episode when it went really bad. But it has this phrase in it, which is "and those of us who walk there walk alone." So it starts off with you know, "this is Hill House, it's haunted, it's oh, it's a bit funny," and um, those that walk there walk alone, and then the paranormal investigators come in and investigate it. But there's this one character called Ellie, and she's a really sad character because she, she's homeless and lives with her sister, and her sister is really spiteful to her. But she's been invited to go to this house for the weekend, and she means to do it. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. So her character is really melancholic, in, and she kind of falls in love with this house, or the, the house falls in love with her. And, and there's this whole kind of, you're seeing things in her head, and you're hearing her thoughts all the way through it until, you know, it has the ultimate thing. Spoilers, 1963. You've really had a chance to watch it already. Um, When she dies at the end, and then she is the voice of the house. And she says, and those of us that walk here walk alone. And that is the most important part of that, because it is that whole, there's a thousand ghosts here, but none of them know each other. You are completely on your own within this house. And this house is incessantly not incessantly, it's inherently evil within the bricks itself. And it just, and I would say as a film that captures that concept, and the fact that the paranormal investigators means that they are just throwing haunted house concepts at it all the way through, which I think makes it uh, more, more frightening in that way. Um, so I think, I think that's a good film to watch for the, for the general mood of Poe. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, from what you were saying there, I was thinking there's echoes of The Shining, um, the film, but but that's got more malevolence behind it rather than melancholy. Yes. 
that's a building that sort of like really wants to fuck people over who've sort of like um, stayed there. Whereas, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, where the haunting is more, it's a house that just wants to kind of, you know, piss people off enough that they take their own lives, really. You know, that's the, that's what it does. Brilliant. Well, I think that was, that was wonderfully fun. Do you have anything else that you want to add about Poe? Um, no, I think we might pop back to Poe at a future one because um, he's written that many good things. Um, I mean, things like, have you read The Black Cat? Uh, no, but I do have it. I do have um, it. The, yeah, we're going to have to dip into that one at some point because, um, yeah, it's you can't be a bit of animal cruelty, can you? Um, <laughs> and also... Different times. Um, the Thousand and Second Tale of Sherizard. Um, it's just a beautiful piece of writing that's so much fun. And the purloined letter when he starts that off with the whole detective genre. So, yeah, there's an awful lot more we're going to be able to look into with Poe. But, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think we've said an awful lot about him there. And, and an awful lot about the creative process that could have been, I think, without going into uh, trying to find evidence for our own ideas you know, just basically generally going on about it. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to, I'm going to say that that's our first podcast. Um, we're going to figure out what we're going to talk about next time. We don't know what it is now because, you know, we just, we do these things on a whim. That's, the, you know, how it happens. But um, we're going to put this up. We're going to share it about the place and uh, please share it about the place for us. And if, if it's on YouTube, subscribe to whatever it is we put it up on. And, uh, and, and if you have any ideas that you want, things you want us to discuss, Give us comments, send us messages if you know where we are, and we will we will quite happily look at things and give them a discussion, but not as a self-promotion. We do like to promote new authors, and we probably will do that at some point, and new filmmakers and stuff like that, but don't do the whole, you know, don't don't reach up into the book and go, will you discuss Blooding by Colin Davis? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't don't look at the tales of Inmuth, of, uh, you know, from Ashley Lister and say, we're going to discuss this series not about that we're looking at you know look at things that you've you've loved and said let's have a look at the creative process on that one and see if we can come up with something absolutely and yeah you've given me some ideas for what we could talk about um in future ones um and yeah i was just thinking about a filmmaker i know who does some um, great stuff that i've seen on youtube <laughs> well, so yeah um, people as well so that 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 will be going on as well so but anyway ash so yeah Thanks oh. a lot, man. That was really cool. I like that. So uh, we'll we'll do this again at some point, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be talking to you all later at a further point. So bye for now. <laughs>